Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. My name is Lee Davis, the Chief Executive of SEPA, and through this series of podcasts, I'm going to invite SEPA members and some of our key partners to share their stories with me. I am joined in this adventure by my co-host, SEPA Council Member and Honorary Secretary, Gwilym Roberts. We are the two IPs in the pod. Hey, Gwilym, what have you been up to recently? Uh, oh, I've been um, trying to stay fit. been running every day. Is it working? Uh, I am running, but it's not working. <laughs> it's the most awful thing. How's your exercise regime been going, Lee? Uh, I, I fortunately invested in a second-hand treadmill before this kicked off, so I got it out of the conservatory. I can't use it early in the morning because it's below the girls' bedrooms and they complain if I make noise. Can't use it in the evenings because they get on there and use it, so I have to try and fit it in Jordan. I, t- I tend to put myself on quiet on a Zoom meeting and just nip outside and have a little run. You're not doing that during this podcast, presumably. If I go quiet, you'll know that having I'm a run. Yeah, having a run. Yeah. Must be quite good. Here's a perfect link early, early in the podcast. That must be great for taking your tortoise for a walk. Do you know what? It's funny you should say that because only, <laughs> only, only yesterday, uh, Neil Lampert at SEPA, my mm-hmm. deputy, sent me a picture of his mum walking in Bournemouth. And uh, I'll email you the picture later, Gwilym, because she, she was on Bournemouth Pier and she came across a woman walking her tortoise on a dog lead. Genius. genius. Absolute genius. Yeah. It must have I been a very to... slow walk. But, um, I'm trying to work out where the collar goes as well, because they've got kind of long, thin, pointy heads. It was, so not... it was wrapped around the shell and sort of tied in, oh. fashioned in some sort of knot. But, uh, yeah, no, ne- never seen the lake before. I just pop mine out of the garden and away he goes. Um, you mustn't men- mention tortoises later on in the podcast, because one of our guests is a tortoise keeper. So, so uh, just to kind of warn you in advance about that. That's all right. <laughs> Probably should introduce the guest, shouldn't I? Because that's what people are here to listen to. So today, we're going to shine a light on the world of invention and creativity. Coming up with the idea can be the easy bit, but turning that into a viable product and along the way making sure you protect your IP can be quite a journey. So it's an absolute pleasure to have Richard Adams, the founder of Gecko Rubber, on the pod today. Hello, Richard. Hello. Hello, Lee. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Where you're, um, it's really, really exciting to have you on the podcast, and uh, we're going to give you lots of opportunities to, for you to tell us about your particular story and your journey. And we've got your patent attorney with us, Tom Turner from Abel and Imray. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Lee. And how are you? Uh, yes, very well also, thank you. And for, uh, for the benefit of people listening, you are the tortoise keeper. Uh, that's right, yes. So your listeners have learned something about me already. Yeah, good. And Tom's got two. That's just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> it's not advisable to have to <laughs> yeah, that's what Lee, Lee's been saying this it, gets, it sounds quite violent they're not particularly pleasant to each other has to be said but they are siblings and have been together uh, almost their entire lives so there's a sort of tolerance between them not always happy but they get along okay Hey, Tom, I, I thought I'd invented something and uh, Gwilym doesn't think there's a market in it, but I, I didn't, I've not actually made it or anything like that. And maybe I could speak to Richard about this because this, it's, got, it's got a rubber kind of base. I was thinking about a bumper car kind of device for tortoises so that if you do keep more than one, you can kind of wrap this rubber bumper around the shell so that when they're, when they're kind of going at it, then um, they're not damaging one another. Do you think there's a market? Maybe. <laughs> You go ahead, Tom. <laughs> I can talk about the technical thing. You can talk about the realities of tortoises. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll come back at to, to at the end because I'm sure people aren't here to listen about my bonkers inventions for tortoises. 
So Richard, Gecko Rubber, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, yourself and also your creations? Um, well, yeah, I will I'll try. I, I got involved. I, I actually left university with a chemistry degree about 35 years ago, and I joined a tyre company, uh, a rubber company, clearly. Uh, they also did non-tyre products as well. And um, my father also happened to be a lecturer in rubber technology, if you like, did sort of talk to a degree standard rubber technology. And he and I, I suppose, got into technical discussions following that over some years and we we thought that um there's a new technology out there that we could we could sort of start up and uh after working in the industry tar rubber industry for 18 19 years i decided to take the leap of faith and start this project if you like with my father uh in, in attendance and we managed to get a research grant from the dti as it was at that in those days the, D- the department of trade and industry is it and um yeah, that's the one. they 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 we won a grant and um we started researching a effectively a new expanded rubber technology and the, the idea basically being is that obviously rubber normally is solid and therefore heavy and we thought that maybe we could lighten it and uh, uh, but people have tried that of course for many years before we tried and, and and have achieved certain levels of success but we felt that the products that were achieved weren't really of a, a great quality and that they they're often uh, were had inconsistent properties throughout the material the, the expanded rubber sponge rubber let's say if you think of a sponge rubber the properties are inconsistent the the both static and dynamic properties of the expanded material weren't that good and often a lot of people really only chose very basic applications for those products, basic grommets um, seals of not very high technical uh, requirements and it never really got a great grounding but we thought hang on there, there's got to be a better way to make a better material and so uh yeah i i set up i got a little got a grant and got some money from the bank uh, and started researching some ideas that my father and i had and we 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 went from there and i sort of set up a very basic laboratory uh, and we we did some research i i knew the industry quite well by then and could get little rubber samples made knew the formulations quite well i was a a compounding chemist was my first job in the tire industry so uh, yeah, we, 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 we got some success really quite early on in, in achieving good properties, good homogeneous product, but it required a lot more than that. And we we originally sampled it in the world of remote re, remote control racing car tyres, but really it was just a stepping stone to the really the idea that we, one day we could make large tyres out of expanded rubber. So ultimately we were looking at um, probably, first of all, bicycle tyres and the fact that we knew that in the world of bicycles punches were and still are a bane a pain and also that if we had a cellular material material that was effectively puncture proof then you wouldn't have to pump it up so this was our goal that eventually we would reach this point and but it's a bit easier said than done and if you get your sponge from your kitchen sink and wrapped it around your wheel it probably wouldn't do too well on on your bicycle so (laughs) we knew we had to get some good properties uh, a robust that would last on the tire and we um, it's taken a lot of time but um we think we've just about got there now um during the last six or seven years particularly we focused on the bicycle tire development and that was the point where six seven years ago i approached abel and emory and tom and matthew who's formerly matthew brought tom in on the program straight away and i've been working with tom ever since and uh, hopefully we, we, we've done some really great work in the terms of patenting. We've managed to patent our 
technology, um, uh, both both in in the USA and in Europe. And if we had a lot more money, we would have gone to other places as well. But um, we essentially have patented it: uh, UK, Europe, USA. And I think it's it's a key part of the assets of our company now. Of our our patents around this technology because it goes well beyond bicycle tires. The, the application of lightweight rubber that can be bonded as well can go into many rubber type applications in the in the automotive world or in <clears throat> the anti vibration isolation, a vibra- noise vibration isolation, and so on. And lightweight rubber materials in the aerospace industry. So there's lots of areas, anti shock products, lots of areas that it can go where it's crying out for material with consistent homogeneous properties and i think i'd better um stop there certainly very keen when it comes to rubber aren't you Graham, you're a cyclist oh. would, would you would you use a puncture proof tire oh oh the idea of a puncture proof tire there is nothing worse than being stuck typically around the oval is where i i, I tend to I tend to have punctures yeah and you just I, I, I'm terrible. I'll cycle home on the flat tires. I know you're not supposed to do, and it also really kills you. It's horrible. No, but absolutely love the idea of that. Um, I, I, are, they, are they so? Just jumping ahead, are they out? Can we get these things? So this isn't a sales um, podcast, but I'm interested because I want, I want this tire. <laughs> We've really been test marketing. We, we started selling small numbers really online at the end of last year. Really, um, because we, we've been refining the product over a number of years and I, I've been criticized for being a bit of a techie and perfectionist and trying to perfect it, but I knew that we needed to take it to a new level and to protect me in terms of weight, we needed to reduce the weight further. So I hopefully have done my final round of development and research on this and that our new range of products will be out this autumn, late summer, autumn time. We should start, you'll start seeing the new range of Gecko bicycle tires with the new lightweight technology uh, which will be hopefully something that um, the bicycle industry it, it seems it does want and and um yeah we'll we're hopefully start moving to make one day a, a profit would be nice we haven't done that for 15 years <laughs> one thing at a time fully research and development all for 15 years and, and, and getting the money for that has has not been easy but hopefully we can start putting the money back to where it came from with a bit of interest when, when did you um, when did you realise you needed a patent attorney? What was the what was the spark that made you approach? It's a good AI? question. Very good question, Lee. I, I, I previously worked for a tyre company, as I mentioned, but also for another um, quite well known uh, well, I can say a company called Three M, who are very innovative in their own right as well. And I got involved in 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 a number of discussions around patents. I didn't lead them. But I knew that, and then my job, my job at 3M again was in the polymer world, particularly rubbers and plastics, and and also with Avon, we knew that we tried to develop some of our products and our technologies. I knew, I knew that this was a, a, a good goal to have, but it wasn't easy. Uh, and both in those companies, particularly 3M, a major sort of global company, also found it difficult to patent a lot of what it had. Uh, particularly in the polymer world, because there seemed to be ways that uh, people could try and copy it or get around it quite easily. Uh, and I was aware of those. Um, so, But I thought, yeah, it really would be good to patent this technology if we could. And I, I felt there were some un- unique elements around it that we could do that. But um, I needed to find um, a good good patent attorney um, pretty soon to discuss it, what the feasibility of it was. And I think pretty much straight away I was there with Matthew and Tom and I had that first meeting, I think, and um, they felt, yeah, that 
this this I pointed out the key elements of our, of our technology, if you like, a key two stage process around expanding rubber up to ten times the the, the, the volume uh, and bonding and so on and elements into it. And they thought, yeah, we these elements could be patented, uniquely patented. And so we we started work <clears throat> back in twenty fourteen. What have you learned about the patent process? That there will be people listening to this who might be thinking about an invention for the first time or thinking about whether they even need to protect their IP. What did you learn about the patenting process through this, um, through the work that you've done with Abel and Imre? Well, it's normally expensive. Um, I have to say that. Um, I, I, doing it on your own is probably not advisable. For, so you have to be very careful and know your goals very clearly. And, and But but also, it, it's, it's clearly a very detailed process, incredibly intensive. I actually went on a course before I even spoke to Abel and Emery. It was uh, it was provided by a business support group, but sponsored by the government. So I, I did do a two day training on, on on how to patent your technology first. So that on based on my previous experience was, was sort of led me to believe it's quite a lengthy process, and you need a good patent attorney who does understand what you're doing, and um, that, that that there are lots of challenges to to getting a, t- a patent that will survive and, and, and be robust and that can be robustly defended in an area where where copyists are out there clearly in such major markets such as in tires i think your listeners are going to be comfortable with the idea that it's not a cheap process i think it's um it's an investment but it's very complex as you said sometimes it's difficult to to kind of Get, get the exact projection you want. But I'd interest Tom. Um, so this isn't my field. I'm, I, I'm a physicist, so I don't know anything about polymers and things. But have you found Richard's kind of preconception that it's tricky to get good patents in this technical field true? Or have you, you got some corkers out there? I think that is a, a true assessment for this field. There are some fields you work in where uh, there's a lot going on at the same time and the sort of the, the dates you get things on file really matter because everybody's researching, but there's room then for getting protection for some quite big ideas. Other fields people have been working on and off for many years and, and rubber is one of those. Uh, there aren't many clients I've worked for where you're looking at uh, prior art searches uh, what's gone before and picking up citations that are 100 years old um, and that reflects the fact that that research on expanded rubbers and rubber formulations has, has been going on for more than 100 years and you occasionally run up against these things when you're trying to get sort of uh, you know the, the best protection you can for your clients it's a it's a bit of a tricky area in a number of respects, really. You've got this aspect that things have been going on in that field for a long time. And you've also got uh, the fact that know-how is really important when it comes to polymer compositions. I do quite a bit of work um, in industrial chemistry and it can be a bit of a black box. Uh, And knowing exactly exactly the right amounts to put in, the precise materials you're using, what order you combine things, the temperature you do things at does matter. And so getting that balance between protecting the key concepts with patent protection and working out what should be held back as know-how is is a bit of a tricky one, really. And it does make it challenging as well when you're trying to work out if you can get something as a patentable invention to really see whether the prior art is talking about the same thing or not, because there tends to be a little bit of an absence of detail. Uh, And so it can be quite complex navigating through all of that 
I think it's fascinating. I think looking, uh, people then use the patent system sometimes for one of the main reasons it was designed for, which is to actually provide you with information about your technical advances. So sometimes delving back into these old patents, people don't do it enough, I think, sometimes. There's some great work which which got forgotten almost. And Richard, actually, interestingly, you're saying that, you know, your dad was a lecturer in the area. So, of course, you're going to have that really encyclopedic knowledge to, to draw on. I guess that can actually help. You can find old solutions to new problems, but then again, use them in a new way as well. Yeah, absolutely. He, he had a great history. He, he was in the, in the polymer rubber industry for, for, for many decades and he could call on. And, and when we, we, we had these numerous, when, when other fathers and sons were talking about football down the pub, he and I were talking about rubber technology and, and applications for tyres. But, but, but that went on for many, and he would bring out all sorts of examples why certain things couldn't be done and certain things should be looked at. And it was actually, he was the inspiration really behind this whole thing. And having, again, the, a great patent attorney recommended to me uh, in reflection, that's clearly been the case in my opinion. Um, we, we could make this up because we knew that the patenting would be key because people are and will want to copy this um, when they <coughs> what it can do. Um, but yeah, my father did have lots of uh, many different examples of where to go and lead it. And he certainly started the whole thing. Um, I guess I guess you guys are at quite a nice um, it's a nice interface. There's lots of different relationships patent attorneys have with their clients, and sometimes it's it's enormously arm's length. Whereas it sounds like here you've been able to work really pretty closely, Tom. I guess you know the business pretty well, so that you're able to. We're always a bit wary about giving business advice, obviously. But there comes a point where there is this crossover between the patent and the commercial. And Tom, how did you how did you find that? It's a really good question because you're exactly right. We're we're not business advisors as patent attorneys. Uh, we're legal advisors, and and that's our area of specialism. But it fits into the business, and being able to provide pragmatic advice to clients with a a bit of a steer on you know what's going to be the most valuable course of action, how can they get the most effect for what they're they're spending on it. It, it does need some thought and it, it's it's something that really feeds into working with particularly smaller firms who are in this sort of accelerating stage of, of growth and, and innovation who are perhaps less familiar with it. And with, with Gecko and it's true of some other clients as well, there's a particular challenge there to make sure that the, the client is fully aware of their options for protecting their intellectual property the consequences of not protecting it now, but also what they're going to get out of that. Is it worth spending the money there? Is it better to spend it in another way? Uh, what is the sort of most effect you can get for a limited budget? And, you know, in, in the case of uh, Gecko in particular, Richard's already alluded to this, there are quite a few different uh, applications of his technology, and they do all feed from from this particular discovery of of the molding process and the formulations to use and it's important that we didn't ever close the door to getting protection for these these other things but equally the business is focused on bicycle tires and that has got to be the core uh, area and that's where the money needs to be spent so for how this sort of played out in practice is we made sure that we described various different uses of uh, this material in the original patent application and when it came to prosecuting and going towards getting things granted, we narrowed it down onto bicycle tower tires, but kept that material there so that if funds permitted and if the business developed, you could go with divisional applications for the cases that would then pull out these these other areas. 
And I think that's worked quite well for Richard's business. It meant that we were able to get a couple of cases granted fairly quickly, which I think looked good for investors um, and, and creditors while also being able to keep things going. But it's, it's a challenge. And I do think it's really important to get a close relationship with, with your client in situations like this so that you do know what the business's real interests are and you can frame your advice with that sort of commercial perspective. Richard, can I um, come back to something that you said earlier? You touched on the areas where you have a patent, where you've patented the, the product. Was that part of a strategy? Uh, did you identify those markets as being particularly important? And are there reasons other than financial why you're not in other um, jurisdictions? Uh, yeah, good good question. Uh, yes, I, had, I discussed this with, with Tom and uh, looked hard. The, the premium markets for, for bicycles and bicycle tyres are clearly North America and Europe, although other parts of the world are very viable as well. And so we decided to focus on, on, on those. And, and um, Asia had a bit of a reputation some years ago, you guys know far better than I, but I was aware that sometimes getting patents and protecting them is a little bit hazardous in, in the East, in the Far East, in Asia. Uh, so, so we thought, uh, also our, the likely customers that I, I was aware of and the ones I was talking to and the ones I thought I would be able to form relations with were predominantly North American or European based as well. So at that time, it's quite interesting actually, I'm now discussing partnerships with many Asian companies, with a, num- sorry, not many, a number of Asian companies now and it's growing uh, Asian based headquartered but Certainly, back six seven years ago, it was it was that, that was the reasons why. The the the, the yeah, the, I say the money. The money I, I, I must say, money well spent as far as we're concerned. Um, it, it's been again extremely well guided by Tom. He's been extremely like, like he said, very clear on what it's going to cost, what and where and where is it worth spending the money in these areas, and how best to to negotiate that that field of, of where to apply because you could spend a lot of money, of course. But yeah, the 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 with with that guidance, I think we've made some very good decisions, and, and yeah, I think some really good successes. And again, as Tom highlighted, potential partners and creditors and, and banks and everybody—they're all very interested to me uh, by the fact that we've got patents, patents granted in useful, interesting areas, and on some some areas that they can understand. They can all visualise a bicycle tire and, <laughs> and know that not having punches is 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 a, is a is a is a nice thing to have. And in, ter- in terms of what you've learned through this process, if you were going to go back to the start again, would you do anything differently? Um, probably not. I, I, you always, in hindsight, go down some wrong alleys technically. not With patent, the patenting process, not at all. Um, and I'm so glad that, that we, we did it when we did it and we started it and that we chose Able. Able and him, we were recommended to me. They happened to be in my home, based in my hometown or one of their offices are based in my hometown anyway, which is very useful. But they were recommended very strongly by someone I knew um, and uh, it's worked out really well. So, no, I, I'm really pleased the way it's gone. I just wish I had more resources to have done a bit more patenting around the world. And, and But it's just with everything when you start on startups and you grow, you've, you've got to just uh, prioritize where the money's got to go. And I had to budget it if you like. And, and I, this is a, a very good time. So how understanding I'm not here to keep bigging up Abel and Emery really, that's not the point, but uh, I, I do, I must say they've been fantastically supportive as have others key support, uh, suppliers in and giving us a bit of, if you like credit space time, to financial help, if you like, in many ways, and, and holding back their bills so that we could move forward in, in a reasonable way. And I think that will all pay dividends 
later. So I'll, well, <clears throat> I was trained at Able and Nimrod, and if you knew that, Tom. So uh, back in many, many years ago, I actually started there. So um, I have a soft spot for them. It sounds like things are still going well. And I'm sure I'm a better patent attorney for the time I spent there. Um, I was actually interested to hear about the the funding side of it, because obviously that's a really tricky balance to strike, because it's all about how much to keep, how much to give away. Um, you know, when just when I think you, you clearly made one very tough decision, which is to focus in on bike tires as of all the things you could be doing, I guess that must, I'm guessing that was a tough but important decision to make. Um, how, how have you found the funding process? Because that's obviously one of the biggest challenges that faces anybody with a, with a big idea like this. Yeah, it's diff- difficult, um, I, 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 but I probably found it less difficult than a number of other startups. I have to be honest, the, 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 the fact that you have a, a product technology that is quite easily seen, uh, and, and that it's patented, I, I keep emphasizing that point, they could see that it's a high-tech type product, did help. And I think I, I know other people who, who had probably just as good ideas as the ideas we had going back 15 years and tried to go get through and, and have all, sadly, a lot of them have fallen away because they, they couldn't get the funding. A lot of good ideas are lost because small companies just cannot... The, just understanding how to run a company is difficult enough and understand all the finances behind it and then to find the money and you know believe me there are challenges when you use up everything you've got and you have to keep them going out and borrowing or finding investors and try not to give away the company too much there are challenges there and i've just been very fortunate i think with good advisors and good suppliers and, and people uh, i know to 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 negotiate that's a bit of a minefield really so tough, yes, but I don't think I've been. It's been probably easier for me than it has for many other startups. So, Richard, you in, in an answer you gave Gwilym earlier on about when the tyres would be on the market, um, you indicated that it's fairly early days for you. Are there any nuggets of wisdom you want to pass on to um, inventors and people who are trying to get products to market in terms of how you move from getting that patent to getting it to market? Yeah, that's that's a, a very good question. And even before I spoke with Tom and Abel and Emery, I knew of the importance of patents um, in, in, in gaining commercial success. And, but it has to be robust, well-written, granted, obviously, well-written and robustly defended. Um, but yeah, the, the nuggets are that, yeah, the, the elements in that patent have to be very clearly different, knowing the technology to anything that's been done before and have confidence in that. And with the way that Tom just inst- immediately picked up on that w- w- was great. And having that, knowing that we've got clearly, having confidence to know that the patent really is quite special. It really does outline, it made me think about our technology, made, made me think, actually, with every, every year, how, what a great technology it was because of the patenting process. Because you learned, you learned so much about what you were trying to do and, and how to compartmentalize it and pick out the important bits. So, so once I had that and the confidence of that, then I believed, yes, right, okay, let's let's get let's develop the product. And we talked about the first one really to go for, major one would be bicycle tires. Um, the technology lends itself so well to that technology uh, to that market, and and it's one that a lot of people are familiar with. So it's a good first one, and yeah, I, I believe it's quite demanding the market, but I believe that we 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 because it's huge. I mean, there's a billion bicycle tires bought every year, uh, both. For, for original equipment and replacement and and we don't need too big a percentage of that to do very well thank you very much so so we're we're, we're focusing on the, the 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 great technology that really is going to be difficult for people to copy 
Reverse engineering it anyway would be difficult. That's a good thing. That's a good tip. If you if you know that reverse engineering what is quite a complex technology, you're in a fairly comfortable space. But there are the Michelins of this world could still do it, and then know that you you've got a good sound patent that protects it. Then you've got the confidence to speak to people because inevitably you do you do have people you do speak to people potentially who are competitors, and they the the, the worry. Clearly, in our case, the worry that this is a disruptive technology uh, I've seen does cause concern with some members of the tyre industry, if you like, who are who 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 have not. I don't think been threatened very much. The bicycle tyre industry has not been threatened very much by solid tyre products, puncture-proof products. So far, in my opinion, they've used a, a certain expanded plastic technology. We've got something very new that a lot of people say is very near to the performance of a pneumatic tyre. It's not perfect, hasn't been perfect yet, but we think we're getting close to a great uh, product now with, with our new lightweight range. And that's probably the last thing that I had to sort out, really, was getting the, the product lighter. But we, we've got great products that are close to the rubber. So this is something that I think is going to take off quite quickly. And I've got the confidence to get behind it. And, and knowing that the interest is there, we we can probably... I like to think pick and choose the right partner because we're going to need a manufacturing partner. And my question is, do I build a big plant, which I believe it's what's going to be required to make these tires ourselves, or do we talk to someone who's already got plants that can make rubber things and maybe get them to, to partner in with it? And that's the sort of discussions I hope to – well, I've, I've already started actually having, and um, probably this time next year these will be in, in – in, I really do hope that these are going to be in a big – big volume because the, the market needs to see them uh, and I can't do everything I'm a limited micro company and I, this thing I'm talking to advisors now and getting growing the team and growing this through this autumn and I hope this time next year maybe if you wanted an update on the podcast we could do that and hopefully it will read, read, read out quite well perhaps we could get Gwillem to do a wheelie around um, town with the tyres <laughs> I could be flanked by tortoises the speed I go as well <laughs> Do you mind, may I ask a couple of nerdy questions of Tom? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> a couple of patent, patent attorney specials. I say no tests, don't worry, because I, mean, I don't know the tech. <laughs> First of all, do you know, because I've just done this, do you know what you get when you type in Gecko into the Spasnet search engine as just a general keyword? Do you know what the first hit is? Uh, well, I could try typing it very quickly now. I, but, well, no. I can tell you. So I'll <laughs> save you the effort. It's absolutely fascinating. You actually get... Um, a method for processing gecko, uh, <laughs> comprising the steps of putting a dried gecko in milk <laughs> uh, and then um, stirring it uniformly, uh, most moistening and drying, uh, 10 to 300 grams of gecko. That's just interesting. Um, but I was quite <laughs> that was not what I was expecting to see when I checked out your, 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 um, your, your, um, your product. Um, more nerdy and a bit more, more relevant, just out of interest. So we've been talking, I think, a lot about UK, Europe, US in terms of patent applications. Um, two things, really. First of all, who do you prefer working in front of? Which patent officers have you had good or bad experiences? Because that's something we all have to deal with. And secondly, I guess you've been treading a, a line between patent lifetime and um, how, to, you know, how to keep the patent life going given the development time that's required. So two questions there for you. Not, yes, okay. not, not dried gecko, that's, that's just a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> uh, so your first question was, how do you find working before the different offices? 
Uh, actually, with with this technology, it, things have gone pretty smoothly. Uh, and so just in the context of, of Richard's work here, it would be a bit unfair to draw much of a distinction between the offices. One of the things that worked very well, though, for your more sort of patent savvy listeners in, in this case, and, and really helped us keep costs uh, tightly under control. When we we, we used the UK IPO as our first filing office, uh, sure. and they gave us a search uh, on the original application, which, as I said, wasn't really limited to just bicycle tyres. We were looking more broadly than that, and so our claims originally were, were more broadly focused than that. And that's when it became clear that expanded rubber is something that people have been looking at for a long long time and we'd we'd have to think a little bit about how we were going to frame things when we were looking outside the UK knowing then that that costs were not there wasn't an unlimited budget we're going to have to be a bit conscious of it so we we framed our follow-on international application on bicycle tires while still keeping all of the material that would allow us to go for other uh, sort of technical applications in the future but we sort of kept that focus on on bicycle tires and that was quite effective before the European Patent Office uh, they uh, recognized the point that there are particular challenges with with bicycle tires uh, and that is a is a limitation then that you're placing on something which does rule out some of these earlier documents we're aware of. Richard said when he was talking about the technology earlier that expanded rubber had been used in much more basic um, applications just as sort of sheets to make grommets out of or, or pads to put into things not usually molded into um, particularly shaped parts or type tolerances and, and that's one of the things that his process is able to do as a real step change on what's gone before so by putting that focus on we we had a pretty positive uh, search opinion um, when we filed our international application at, at the EPO we tweaked that a little bit um, while it was still in the international phase, and that then allowed it to go through very smoothly in the US and Europe. People that have, have handled patent applications will know that the US PTO is frequently uh, keen to forge its own path when it comes to searching and examining patent applications. See, this, this is what I was fishing for, so we've got there in the end. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, doing their own search, coming up with their own documents and taking a very, very different view, certainly when it comes to whether something's inventive or not. But having got a positive opinion out of the EPO, we were able to sort of piggyback on that with, um, by, by using the uh, Patent Prosecution Highway. Oh, cool. And that... Um, uh, prompts the, the USPTO to essentially forego doing an extra search um, and and accept that if something is deemed to be fully okay by the EPO, it's probably okay in the US as well. And, and that really saved a lot of cost and a lot of headache when it came to getting things through in the US. It does have the slight downside when you're trying to keep your options open and, and save costs that uh, it went to grant pretty quickly. Um, and so we were looking at, you know, a continuation application there in fairly short order. Um, but that's that has been quite effective in, in this case. Your general question of how do you find the, the different offices it really varies case by case. It, I find that it's that divergence on inventiveness that, that really marks them out and makes them more challenging. And there are pros and cons of both. Um, the US um, patent examiners will combine 15 documents if they really want to, um, to show something's obvious. 
the EPO won't do that, but they'll be uh, sort of much more sweeping on, well, that feature's not there, but I think it's obvious anyway. So, you know, there's, there's <laughs> pros and cons to dealing with them. But in, in this case, it was fairly harmonized. Oh, there's one other one about the duration. So you've got 20 year life yes, on Pantorally. <laughs> this is interesting. Trust me, <laughs> Pan attorneys want to hear this, all right? No, this, is, this is our audience. He's fallen asleep. Right, carry on, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in that case, what we've looked at with, with Richard on the one hand is, um, you know, getting things granted. So there's a granted patent there and it's got some life left in it, um, but before it runs out. Also looking at follow-on applications, uh, we've uh, more recently looked at sort of new developments that, that Richard wanted to protect um, as a sort of ongoing uh, thing, which essentially gives you an extra five years if it's a development on, on something that we're filing now. Uh, it, it needs to be new and inventive over what's gone before, of course, but uh, it, it's that sort of continual product development. So that's the kind of typical story. I think the other thing that term impacts in an example of a smaller company like Richard's is that it's something to keep in mind when you're thinking how much money to spend on overseas protection. Because uh, as, as Richard said, there are other parts of the world that are of interest, but there, there is a, a pragmatic point of, are markets such as some of the Far East markets or, or maybe Australia or New Zealand, are GECA going to be hitting those within 20 years of filing that first application, which is now already six, seven years ago, uh, or, or not? And if they're not really going to be hitting those markets in that time frame, then is it really worth getting the patent protection there? Um, and that's, that's difficult to crystal ball gaze at into the future, but it's I quite often find that working with um, startups, they they can see the potential of their invention and they really want to get potential protection around the world. They can see it taking off. But the reality is it takes many years to, to get an invention out and on the market and successful around the world. So is it really worth spending all of that money on translating and filing things in far off countries when perhaps those resources could be better spent elsewhere? Now, Richard... I'm going to give you an opportunity that most people don't get when there are patent attorneys in the room. You're going to get the last word, which is um, which is a rarity in my world, believe me. So um, maybe it's an unfair question, but um, if if there are startups listening to this, what would be your top tip? What's your best piece of advice you could give them? Uh, it, it, yes, in ter- certainly in terms of intellectual property, I, I will say if they think they've got something that that really is quite quite unique and c- could could be commercially successful then they 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 should seriously consider looking at their intellectual property strategy if you like and i i i felt that it's taken some time and taken some money but we've got something that's very valuable and there's a lot of interest in what we're doing i will say yes we haven't made our we're not a break-even company at the moment but we've got a lot of interest a lot of um developments going on that I can't talk about at the moment some I can that that really I think that mean that we're going to be in a very strong place already uh, uh, next year so get um get a get an intellectual property strategy and and really look at patents and trade secrets of what you're doing if it's unique as your assets as, as a real asset to your company and use that when you're in discussions with getting money getting get invest 
investment money in, talking to partners, talking to banks, talking to potential manufacturing partners in the future, and know that they'll 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 be more comfortable in partnering with you. So yes, it's something to consider as a real asset to your business, not as something you should do at the last second. And and get a good quality attorney, patent attorney, in early on and get that discussion made. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. Thank you for that. Well, that's it. We've come to an end. So, Richard, thank you very much for your time. It was fascinating to listen to your story. And Tom also for sharing um, the other side, if you like, the um, the patent attorney side of the story. It was a pleasure to have you both on. I should say that we are keen to hear from other inventors and other patent attorneys out there who want to share their stories with us. So um, this is an open podcast. Anyone can come on and tell their story. I'll also say, personal one from me, we've been four white blokes talking about intellectual property And I am concerned that we get a more diverse representation on the podcast. So if you're not a white bloke and you have a story to tell as an inventor or as a patent attorney, come and join us also. Thanks. Bye-bye.